Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, Lord, I ask that you'd bless us as we go to your word now. I pray that we would hear directly from your spirit through your word and that in power you would give life to those who have not believed yet and that you would sanctify, make holy those who have already called on your name as they seek to follow you more faithfully and they would experience your love and power in a new way. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you hope for if you are a Christian? Let me ask you that again. What do you hope for if you are a Christian? Or perhaps let me ask it this way. When you see Jesus face to face one day, what do you hope to hear him say? What do you hope to hear him say? If you have heard the word preached, and if you have heard the different passages of the New Testament where Jesus talks about his return, and that day when every believer stands before him face to face, there's a phrase that may stand out in your mind. I hope it does. And that's this. That for some, Jesus will look and say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That's the hope of every believer that because of the blood of Jesus, our sins are forgiven and we are cleansed and we are invited into eternal joy. When Jesus describes that moment, he is doing so in the context that not everyone is a faithful believer. And so there is some amount of fear and trembling that is healthy and right, that drives believers towards greater holiness as we examine our lives and anticipate that day. So throughout the New Testament, there are two themes that are woven together that you cannot take them apart. The one is that the return of Christ is the great moment for which we hope and it's eternal joy and salvation and all of the trials of life will be done and you will be blessed forever. And that hope gives strength and confidence and joy in persecution, pain, and trial now. Mixed in with that, not only from the teachings of Jesus where he gives this great phrase, I thought of 1 John. In 1 John, John is writing to believers and he says, my hope for you is that you would be filled with joy at his returning and not in any way ashamed. In other words, John is telling the church, and if you read through the book of 1 John, you understand what he means, that there may be some regret for how we have lived our lives, even for believers when they see Jesus face to face. That's an uncomfortable truth. It's not a truth that is often preached. But I believe it is so mixed up with the hope that we have that it's a disservice to believers if we do not mention it. Jesus himself taught it. John the Apostle taught it. And so this morning... I want to give an encouraging and a helpful and a strengthening message because this is what Paul says to young Timothy. I'm just going to read one verse before we go into our entire passage. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Do you hear that phrase? You will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. It ought to remind us of, well done, my good and faithful servant. In other words, the Bible helps us tremendously so that we do not need to live in anxiety and fear or be worried about future shame 
The Bible tells us what we must do to prepare for seeing the Lord Jesus face to face. And Timothy could have great encouragement from this verse that if he does these things when he sees Jesus face to face, he will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. This is not a pop quiz where you don't know what's on the exam. We have been told what is on the exam. We can prepare. We can be ready. And so my hope as a pastor is that all of us would be ready. That this message will help us be prepared to see the Lord Jesus face to face. Now I want to do a couple of things before we dive in. This passage... Paul is addressing young Timothy in particular as a lead elder or as a pastor responsible for leading a congregation together with the other elders that he's talked about earlier in the book. And so there's an honest temptation to say, I'm not a pastor. This passage doesn't apply for me. I'm going to nap for the next 30 minutes or so. Don't do that. Don't do that. Timothy's task as a lead pastor as a shepherd, is to make sure that all of the flock together is following the Lord so that all of us hear those great words, well done, my good and faithful servant. And I think about it a little bit like this. Uh, Some of you exercise. I, I exercise three times a week. And there is a difference between those who exercise and those who are able to serve as trainers. It's a pretty noticeable difference. If I walk into a gym, no one looks at me and goes, that guy knows what he's doing. Nobody thinks that. They think, oh man, that poor guy hit middle age pretty hard. I get why he's here. Right? Thanks, Paul. (laughs) But if a trainer walks into the gym, you've got a good sense there's a person who knows what they're doing. Their muscles are bigger. They approach all those heavy weights with way more confidence and and a clear sense of exactly what to do with them. Every now and then, they'll run over to somebody who's doing something terribly wrong and be like, no, 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 not like that. The trainers are able to help in ways that average exercisers can't. I can give you advice but you should take it with a grain of salt because it's not worth much. But the trainers in a gym have studied and have prepared and have worked hard to make sure that not only are they fit, but they are able to lead others in the same path that they have walked so that they can become more and more physically fit. And what I want to suggest to you is that a lead elder or a pastor is tasked with being that type of personal trainer so that the things an elder does are the same things that every believer must do. And the hope of being a good and faithful servant of Jesus Christ is not just for the super spiritual, not just for pastors, but for every believer. And so when Paul addresses young Timothy and says, these are the things that you must do, He is addressing the whole church and saying, these are the things that we must do. And so there are two levels that I want you to listen to this message at. One is, what should our pastor be doing? What makes a good pastor? And I want you to pray for me and hold me accountable and seek to look at my life and see if my life is lining up with the things that this passage describes for someone who is called to be a pastor. And here's the other thing that I want you to do as you listen to this message. Don't just have me in mind as your pastor. Ask yourself, am I doing these things? Because it's our responsibility to be united as a church, all of us following after Christ, all of us following the examples of godly people among us, and as the Lord has tasked me with a particular role of leadership, as I am faithful to this book, and as I am faithful to the Lord, there is a responsibility for the church to follow me only to the extent that I am faithful to this book and faithful to the Lord. And so that we as a church would follow the leading of the Lord through the leadership that God has established here. I want to encourage you, I'm going to look at three points this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 
through 10. If you haven't already opened a Bible or popped up your phone, I want to encourage you to find this passage. Read it carefully with me as I go through it verse by verse. And my hope is that all of us would enjoy greater confidence that one day we will hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And I'm going to give you my three points this morning. Number one, there is personal training for public worship. Personal training for public worship. Number two, there is personal training for eternal value. Personal training for eternal value. And number three, there is personal hope for public service. Personal hope for public service. Each of these points demonstrate how a pastor is to prepare for ministry, and each of these points give us insight into how a church is to follow along in that ministry. And I want to remind you of the context of these verses, where we find them in this book. If you remember my message last week, I talked about how, in spite of the fact that Jesus is winning, that Jesus is king, that the church is his outpost wherever a congregation meets, that his kingdom is spread all around the world, even as it is not ruling in complete and total triumph yet, King Jesus has been raised from the dead and we have an eternal everlasting hope. And if that hope is real to you, when you experience the pain of division in your local church, it is confusing. And so last week I preached from the beginning of this chapter. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. And so we should not be surprised when church is difficult. We should not be surprised when sometimes we disagree as a church. Because the Spirit has told us in advance that this is part of church life. It always has been. It always will be until Jesus comes back. But we don't just accept that and despair. We have specific instructions for what to do so that we are ready to see the Lord Jesus and to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so Paul, in light of this discouraging truth that some will walk away from the faith, gives Timothy clear instructions. And to begin with, he mentions this personal training for public worship. I chose our scripture reading this morning from the book of Acts because I wanted to make it very clear. That as Paul instructs Timothy, he he has done what he is instructing Timothy to do, and that the whole New Testament shows that this is the role of faithful pastors, and this is the role of a faithful church. So to begin with, personal training for public worship, look with me at verse 6. Paul writes and says, If you put these things before the brothers... You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. A couple of things as we look at that verse. One of the first questions that we ought to answer is what are the things that he's talking about? If you put these things before the brothers, what is it that the church needs to know? What is it that Paul is talking about when he says, if you put these things before your brothers? Well, one of the things that I do in preparation for a sermon series is I want to read the entire book that I'm going to preach from several times. And as I preach through it, I continue to read the chapters that are ahead of us so that I'm keeping the big picture in view as I prepare each and every message. Sometimes it's easy, especially if it's a verse that you like or if it's a verse that's difficult to understand, to be so focused on a single verse or even just a single word that you completely forget the context. And so as I ask this question, what what is he talking about with these things? One of the things that I realized was that he uses this phrase a lot throughout the book. So I'm going to read you a handful of verses, and I want you to help me ask and answer this question. What does he mean when he says, these things? Because he says in chapter 3, verse 14, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. 
So Paul says 3.14, I'm writing these things to you. What does he mean there? Well, look at verse 6 of chapter 4, what I just read. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Chapter 4, verse 11, the first verse for our passage next week. Paul says, command and teach these things. And then in chapter 4, verse 15, he says, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Chapter 5, verse 7, he says, command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. Chapter 5, verse 21, he says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these things, or some of your Bibles will say these rules, without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. And then in chapter 6, verse 2, the second half of this verse, he says, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So I've given you about a half a dozen verses there where he uses this phrase, these things. And what I think is happening is he is using this word as a sort of constellation throughout the book to connect every aspect of this book so that Timothy understands every component that he has talked about is essential for a healthy church. He has talked about how the leadership of the church is to be organized and structured. He has talked about the mystery of godliness, the gospel that saves, the good news that Jesus died for my sins and for your sins and that he rose from the dead. And he will talk about the essential nature of preaching and the word of God and doctrine. And he's going to talk about how to relate to older believers and to younger believers. He's going to talk about how people who in that time period lived as slaves were to relate to their earthly masters. How do you as a Christian function in an unjust and immoral system? And all of the instructions that Paul has given Timothy, he has said, are essential. And in fact, in the last passage that I've read, he said, if anyone teaches something different and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. In other words, Paul is going straight to Jesus and saying, I have my authority from Jesus Christ, and the things that I'm teaching you are based on his teaching, and as an apostle, I expect you to faithfully teach this. And if someone disagrees, you should not listen to that person. He does not talk as someone who is writing his personal private opinion. He talks as someone writing with divine authority. And so a faithful pastor takes the words of 1 Timothy and of every book of the Bible and regularly puts them before the congregation. In next week's passage, we're going to see Paul instructs young Timothy specifically to publicly read Scripture and to exhort and to teach And to keep a close eye on the teaching of the church, even if he is not the teacher, he is to keep an eye on the teaching of the church and to make sure that it lines up with what all of the Bible says and with what he has learned. And so number one, Timothy has had personal training for the benefit of public worship and his first job is to make sure that he regularly reminds the entire church of all of the things that are true, all of the things that he has studied. What was the nature of his study? Well, we know a little bit. It seems like an eternity ago, but at the beginning of this book, I gave a short message on the on sort of biography of Timothy's young life, how he benefited from having a Christian mother and a Christian grandmother, and how they taught him the scriptures from a very young age. What's noticeable there is that he does not have a Christian father and that Timothy did not have the advantage of growing up in a believing household 
And yet, even without that benefit, his mother and his grandmother taught him the scriptures so well that he was outstanding among the believers of his church. And Paul noticed him and said, I want to take that young man and I want to mentor him. He already knows the word. I want to bring him under my wing and help him understand what it means to be a good servant of Jesus Christ. And I want to show him how to plant churches and how to disciple believers and how to help churches grow in the teachings of Jesus Christ. And so Timothy had some personal instruction in the home that was extensive. He would have memorized scripture. He would have become familiar with all of the stories of the Bible. Guys like David and Goliath, but also the Exodus, God's great saving mercy for his people. He would have known the prophets like Isaiah who condemned sin and God's people and warn of judgment, but also of the great hope that God would save his people. And as they heard about Jesus, young Timothy believed and understood how all of the Old Testament spoke of Christ. And so his private training began in the home, but then continues with this mentorship where Paul helps him understand what is true doctrinally. The question is, how do we put these things before the church? Well, I I believe primarily Paul is telling him, I want you to publicly read scripture. I want you to publicly preach and teach scripture. And I want you to personally disciple people so that they learn the essentials of the faith. And obviously, we all know that there is more to being a pastor than preaching and teaching, but this is essential to being a good pastor. You cannot be a good servant of Jesus without presenting good doctrine and exposing bad doctrine. These verses all mention training, and so I'll say a little bit more about that in my next point, but I do want to take just a moment and talk about how much it's stressed that there is discipline involved in this training. It begins with children, and it continues into adulthood. Timothy is being tasked with the job of an elder. And if you look at chapter 3, it very clearly says that those who lead as elders must be able to teach. So Timothy must be able to teach if he is going to serve as an elder and if he is going to do well as a servant of Jesus Christ. He needs to know the word and he needs to know doctrine and he needs to know it well enough to instruct other people in it. One of the things that I think is essential here is the fact that training is systematic. It's not haphazard. It doesn't mean you memorize a handful of your favorite verses. It means you know all of the word. And that might sound intimidating, but it's a beautiful journey that will bless you if you begin it now, no matter your age. In fact, I was talking to a guy, well, we visited with you, uh, Mike and Stacy. He's, I don't want to give his age. He's an older guy. Um, <laughs> he, he might not appreciate it if, if, he, if he ever hears that this got out, but was so blessed. He said he, he served in the Navy on a submarine as a young man, and then when he got out of the Navy, uh, he was just an entrepreneurial spirit. He had a number of businesses that he said he worked like a dog in, and then he said, you know what? It wasn't until late in life that I realized that I needed to know the word. And he felt some regret, and yet what was really amazing is his devotion and desire to study now and to make up for lost time. He is digging and he is diligent. And so if you're hearing that you need to know all of the word and you feel like that's just too much, don't let that happen. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter if reading is a struggle for you. You can begin. You can listen to the word. You can hear it preached. But recognize that you can't just pick your favorite parts. You need to know all of the word. Paul mentions particularly the words of the faith and good doctrine, but he doesn't just say that he needs to have this head full of content and knowledge. He shouldn't be just winning every debate because he's smart. He also makes it very clear that he has followed that good doctrine, that the right thinking about what is true has changed his life in this way, that he lives consistently with it. Now, let me give you a couple examples of what I mean. I'm going to talk a little bit about 
systematic theology later in this message, but there are major areas of Christianity that every Christian agrees on. doesn't matter if you're Catholic, Protestant. Every Christian agrees that Jesus is God. Every Christian agrees that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He was not a man that became God. He was not a good teacher. He is the eternal Son of God who was present in creation who was slain before the foundation of the world in the mind and plan of God for the forgiveness and redemption of his people. And now, if you understand that that is true, then there is action that follows from that truth. Okay, You can be very smart and nod your head and say, Jesus is fully God and fully man, and you can describe it in some scriptural detail. But here's what must happen if you are going to be a good servant of Jesus Christ. You can't just say yes to that and then stop and move on. You must live a life that's consistent with it. So the actions that follow from the conviction that Jesus is God are worship. Worship through prayer and worship through singing and worship through serving and worship through giving. If Jesus is God, he deserves your devotion. And so you can't just say, oh, I believe Jesus is God, and then live a life that is not devoted to him. Timothy not only knows that Jesus is Lord, but he's devoted to his lordship personally. Not only that, I'm going to give you a couple other areas. If you believe that the Bible is the word of God, you can quote different scripture verses about it. You might know something from 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine or reproof. You might be able to say those verses. But if you know that here and you never bother to read it, or when someone shows you something in it that confronts you and you say, yeah, I don't, I don't agree with that. I, I, don't, you know, I, I think I could point to another verse that would say something different. I, I don't think that's true. You are not behaving in a way that's consistent with the belief that you claim to have. If you believe that the Bible is the word of God, you will submit to its teaching, you will listen to it regularly, you will read it often. Because it's a message from God. God Almighty, who made the world, inspired this book. And if you believe it to be true, it demands not just agreement with a theory, but a change of life that says, I will read it and I will submit to it. I will believe what it tells me. If Jesus is the Savior who died and rose again, confessing your faith and being baptized is the action that follows belief. You might be on the fence and say, yeah, I think Jesus is the Savior, but until you confess that with your mouth and believe that in your heart, it won't do you any good. James says even demons believe and they tremble. They hate the truth about Jesus. But if you believe the truth about Jesus, the actions that follow belief are confessing your sin and experiencing forgiveness and being baptized, united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection and publicly showing your faith. See, Timothy didn't just know that Jesus was the Savior. He had been baptized, and he had followed the Lord in obedience. If you believe that those who do not trust in Jesus will be eternally lost, you might look at a couple of verses and understand that hell is something that is very real for Jesus and the writers of the New Testament. But if you agree with that and do not also weep and pray for those that you love who don't know Jesus yet, if you don't share the gospel, you may be a great theologian and a terrible servant of Jesus Christ. It's possible to know the truth and not live a life connected with it. Paul is saying, Timothy, not only do you need to put these things before the congregation, but you have followed these things. You have lived the truth in front of them. That's what makes you fit and qualified to lead the church because your life is consistent with the doctrine that you have been taught. So believing that those who do not trust in Jesus will be eternally lost should lead us towards faithful prayer, towards sharing the gospel, towards finding creative ways to share the gospel so that they hear the good news that God loves us and Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. 
And if you believe that Jesus is returning at any moment, you will live so that you will not be ashamed at his coming, but instead so you will be full of joy. Now, without making super obvious, what I did just there in those few moments is I went through some major points of systematic theology. What do you believe about the Bible? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about salvation? What do you believe about the return of Jesus? What do you believe about eternity and what happens after death? How you answer all of those questions can and must change the way you live. And Paul tells Timothy, your private training and public life have equipped you to be a good servant. Now get at it. Remind the church of these truths. Remind the church that when you believe something, your life needs to follow that conviction so that you are obedient to the truth of God. Not only is there private training for public ministry, but the truth is these truths and the life that lives consistently with these truths has eternal value. So Paul sort of gives him a carrot. He's not just beating him with a stick. He's dangling this carrot out in front of him saying, there is value in this. You will be blessed when you do these things. And so he gives personal training for eternal value. Look at verses 7 through 9 with me. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent or silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and is deserving of full acceptance. Now, I said I was going to talk a little bit more about training in just a minute, and I want to do that right now. Training is not the same as exercising. I had a friend I worked for for a few years uh, when I was finishing my master's degree, and she had worked in a type of security, and part of her job, they would actually pay her to go to the gym. But she had no interest in actually training, but she was interested in getting paid. So she said she would go to the gym and put the treadmill on about two miles an hour, and she would drink coffee, and she would eat donuts, and be like, look at me, I'm at the gym. I'm getting paid for exercising. But oddly enough, she saw no physical benefit just because she was in the gym. And you won't. If that's your method of exercising, you're not training. You're just maybe burning a few calories, but probably not as many as in the donut that you're eating. Here's the difference. Training has a plan. It has a specific goal. Training recognizes where you are and where you want to be and makes specific steps to get there. Notice that all of Timothy's training is not in the past. It's not in the past. He says that you have been trained, verse 6, but then he doubles down and says, train yourself for godliness. That he is to continue training. And so if we want to apply this analogy, I have a goofy goal in exercising. It's a modest goal. High school girls are stronger than I am when they, when they do weight training. So this is not a laudable goal. But, but by the time I turn 40, I'd like to deadlift 300 pounds. I'd like to. That's my specific goal. To get to that goal, talking to my trainer buddy who actually knows what he's doing because I don't, He has talked me through how to program incremental increases in the weights that I do. And then when I call him and I say, buddy, I I can't do it anymore. I'm supposed to add more weight and I can't. He says, well, how long have you been doing that? And I said, like 12 weeks. And he's like, oh, well, that's about four weeks too long. You need to take a break for two weeks. And so his planning and help 
has helped me incrementally increase my weights. So when I began, I could proudly deadlift the bar without a problem. And I began to add a couple of weights to it because I had some back pain and I didn't want to get hurt. And his help has specifically showed me how to take tangible steps to get from being a novice that didn't know what he was doing to hopefully achieving a very specific and concrete goal. Training is intentional. It doesn't matter if you're training. I was reading one commentary. They talked about a guy who is an opera singer. Opera singers sing very demanding pieces of music. Not that they're musically complex, but they can be physically demanding on their throats. And so he was experiencing a particular type of training that was stretching and testing his limits, and his vocal coach was having him work for insanely long periods of time just on holding one note. Because it was at the peak of his range, and he was trying to stretch his range. This is training. This is intentionally recognizing where you are deficient and doing something to make up for that lack. Now, friends, I I am heavily emphasizing the need to train in Scripture, but that's not the only area of godliness. Training for godliness involves every area of obedience. Training for godliness, I'll give you one particular example, and at the end, I'll have a few more. One of the things that should be true of every Christian is a generous heart. One of the things that should be true of every Christian is a generous heart, because... Your Savior and Lord died for you so that you could have life. And he has promised to supply all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And so if you are then stingy with the things God has given you, whether it's your time or your money, you're not showing a life that is changed. You're showing a life that likes to cling to your things and not extend grace and love to the people around you that Jesus also loves. And he wants to love them through you. So one of the ways to train yourself for godliness is to sometimes give up things you love and intentionally be generous, I believe, even when your heart doesn't necessarily feel like it. Because I think sometimes obedience comes before the joy of obedience. The more you practice these things, the more you train yourself for these things, the more you will have joy, but initially you may not. And I'll go back to my my goofy little exercise analogy. There is not a lot of joy in testing the limits of your strength, particularly when you are not a strong person, because it's humiliating. You, You wish that you were stronger, and also you're in pain. So there's no joy there. But the future joy is when you recognize that you have grown stronger. So every now and then, I, I'm old school, partly because I, like, how many, everybody breaks their phones, right? At some point, every, it just it happens. So phones are not eternal, they are temporary. And so I don't keep my exercise logbook in my phone, I keep it in a little book, it's in a piece of paper, so that if I drop the book, nothing happens. I have never shattered a piece of paper because I dropped it, ever. So every now and then, Lauren will find me in this little book, and I'll be paging back and saying, oh man, three years ago, that's what I did, and now I'm doing a lot better. And that little book gives me a sense of how I have progressed, and the things that caused me great pain three years ago, I do to warm up now. It's much, much easier and much, much better. Now, here's what I think that happens with generosity. When you begin training yourself in generosity, the things that might cause you great pain, you open your wallet and moths fly out of it, right? The things that might cause you great pain initially will later lead to a source of joy because you have begun to open up your heart and you've begun to see how the Lord can bless other people through your kindness and generosity and through your giving. And that's just one area of godliness. This training for godliness is essential not just for pastors to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ, but for every believer. 
And Paul gives him a couple of, of instructions around this truth of personal training for eternal value. The first is, he says, have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. And I debated for a long time in this message how much to spend on irrelevant and silly myths so that we could understand this passage better. Okay, he says, have nothing to do with them, but it would be nice to know what he's talking about. So how long do we spend talking about it when we're just told not to have anything to do with it? And my answer is, not a lot. Not a lot. I'll give you one short myth from his day. You can see hints of it in this book, and that's the only reason I'll mention it at all, is that it is in the Bible, and you do see hints of it. But there's an ancient false teaching called Gnosticism. I've mentioned it in the past. It's pretty prevalent. In fact, it actually has influences today. But what it taught was that the spiritual things in the world were good and pure and beautiful. So God is good. But the physical things in the world were sort of distortions of that original spiritual goodness, and so the physical world was evil. And that's probably why earlier in this chapter, Paul was talking to him about people that forbade marriage and didn't allow eating certain types of food. So there's some evidence in this passage that that's what he's talking about. Later on in the book, in fact, one of the very last things that he says Uh, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. That's verse 20 of chapter 6. Knowledge and Gnosticism, they come from the exact same word. And so what he's saying is this thing that's falsely called knowledge is a silly myth. It makes up a story about creation, and it teaches things that are not true. The Bible says, if you read Genesis, at the end of every day of creation... God said that it was good. God said that it was good. And so in light of that good truth, Paul tells Timothy, hey, don't condemn the things that God has made that are good. Don't condemn marriage. Marriage is a good and a beautiful thing. Don't condemn eating food with thankfulness. God has given us these things to to enjoy and to be blessed and to understand his goodness. But Timothy is not to characterize his ministry by being an anti-Gnostic apologist. He's not supposed to study Gnosticism so deeply that he can refute all of their arguments. He's supposed to instead equip the believers to know what's true. He's supposed to be devoted to the truth rather than devoted to errors. Now here's part of why I think that's true. There are people that God bless them. Irenaeus is one of them went very deeply with the Gnostics and argued with them, and some people were saved as a result of his ministry. I'm not knocking that type of ministry, but I am saying it shouldn't characterize your Sunday morning worship service and the life of your church. Because if you chase after falsehood, you have no time for loving what's true. And Timothy is to be devoted to what is true and to train himself for godliness. So number one, this personal training for eternal value is a personal training that focuses on what is true. He makes it clear that while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. So one of the motivations for this is he takes into our lives the things that we already do. How many of you, if you experience a problem and and you go to your doctor and your doctor prescribes you medication, how many of you take it every day? Most of us, right? Okay, like some of us start to argue with our doctor and be like, no, that's a bad, I'll give you just second opinion. I'm not talking about that. That's a different kind of devotion to your health. You are still devoted to your health. In general, we do what we're told to take care of our bodies. And Paul says, if you're willing to take daily medication, and if you're willing to exercise, and if you're willing to make changes to your diet, your soul is eternal. Your soul is eternal, and you need to train your soul. And so while there's some value in taking care of this tent that will eventually age and die, there is eternal value in exercising your life for godliness. Jesus said that we must live on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When he's tempted by Satan to feed his belly by turning stones into bread, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If we take care of our physical bodies and neglect our souls, 
we may do a little bit better for a little while here, but find ourselves not well-equipped for that conversation with Jesus when we long to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. So, as a pastor, my heart is to make sure that I'm faithful in training and to encourage you to be faithful in training because the reward is eternal. The payoff is everlasting. He says, verse 10, for to this end we toil and strive Words that make you think of sweat and effort because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now look, there is the personal hope for public service. So I talked this morning about Timothy's private training for public ministry. I talked about his personal training for eternal value. And I want to end with a personal hope for public service. One of the things that I hear not infrequently is, is, Pastor, I feel like you're expecting too much from people. I feel like you're placing burdens on them, and it's too hard. You need to remind them of grace and remind them that God loves them. And so here's what I want to do. I want to make it very, very, very clear that all that I've said about training for godliness this morning is based in the grace of Jesus. That's what Paul does at this last verse right here. He says, the reason that we put all of this effort in is because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Friends, here's what I believe life in this world is like. It's like escaping a burning building and believing that there's a rescuer who will save you if you call on him. And my hope is to persuade as many people as I can to call on that rescuer, to call on Jesus Christ. And so because I have a hope that is set on the living God, I toil and I strive and I encourage you to toil and strive because the hope is real and the need is urgent. And my desire is not only to stand before Jesus one day and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, but to hear that again and again and again as you face Jesus Christ. And I can say, wow, the Lord, by his grace and mercy, used me to bless those people so that they were also ready. So that they're hearing, well done, again and again and again. The personal hope that we have is what motivates the toil, and the striving. If you don't have that hope, this is a wasted message because all I've told you to do is just try a little harder. And unless you have the grace of Jesus Christ assuring you of God's love for you, and unless you have the grace of Jesus Christ assuring you of the forgiveness of your sins and his promise of eternal life and of resurrection, unless you have the grace of Jesus Christ active in you, nothing else I've said will make sense. But if you have the grace of Jesus Christ, I want to urge you, be diligent in training yourself. And now I want to talk about how. Notice again his language about toiling and striving, that it takes effort, it takes intentionality. I want to begin with things that are familiar and talk about baptism and communion for just a moment. If you have not become a believer, The first thing that you need to do in obedience to the teachings of Jesus is to be baptized. You need to know that Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. And as you talk to people that don't know the Lord, you need to tell them this is the way that you express your faith, that you believe you deserve to die and Jesus took your death, and that because he has been raised to new life, that he will give you this new life. And baptism is the first step of training yourself for godliness and of toiling and of striving. It's a step of obedience and faith that publicly confesses Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And if you are already a believer, communion continues that step. Taking that little cup of juice and eating that little cracker is a reminder that your sins are forgiven because of the body and blood of Jesus, and you never outgrow it. You go back to it again and again until you remember the love of God for you, and you're strengthened to obey. 
And when you toil and strive, you do it because of the body and blood of Jesus that was given for you to give you the Holy Spirit and to give you the power that you need to obey. We toil and strive when we are baptized and when we take communion. We toil and strive when we give and we give generously, even beyond what we want to give at times. We toil and strive when we learn the disciplines of prayer and as Mike reminded us this morning, the discipline of fasting, seeking the Lord not just with your words, but also with your belly. And friends, I mentioned at the beginning of this service during announcements, I want to begin a class, a 12-week class that talks about the systematic doctrines of, of Scripture. We've done classes where we begin in Genesis and we go all the way through to Revelation and we want to know all of the Word of God. We also need to know the systematic doctrines We need to know what do Christians believe, what should I believe. And so if you have not trained yourself in doctrine and in theology, I want to encourage you to make classes like that a priority in your life. And perhaps you're saying, you know what, I've been in church all my life, I don't need this. You know what I would say to you, friends? None of us stop training until Jesus calls us home. As I was reading a commentary in preparation for this message that the writer was talking about knowing an older godly pastor who was in his 80s. And this guy served his church for 50 years. When I read that, I thought, shoot, I was aiming to do like 35. I don't know if the Lord's going to give me strength for 50. I don't know. I hope so. But he had served his church for 50 years. And the guy that was, thank you, brother, man, (laughs) 60 years is going to put me in my 90s. Shoot. This younger pastor, Philip Riken, that was writing the commentary, talked about knowing this older guy in his 80s. He said he was visiting him at his house, and he had this rare privilege of being mentored by this guy. In his 50 years as a pastor, he had seen revival in the Scottish church that had grown lax. And his faithful preaching through the word of God had lit a fire in the Scottish church and brought revival. And so he had seen the Lord bless in ministry. You would think by 80, he would be like a hard, crusty sailor and he would say, ah, I'm going to teach this young kid what's right and what's true and what's real. And Riken said that when he asked him questions in his 80s, this man would enthusiasm, would run to his library and bring a Bible and a book and say, let's look at this together. We're still learning. We're still learning. Friends, don't stop. Don't stop. We all have more to learn in godliness. And so I want to encourage you. Let's be faithful in learning how to pray. Let's be faithful in learning more of the word. Let's be faithful in learning doctrine. Let's be faithful in practicing godliness. Would you pray with me? Father, apart from your spirit at work in us, and apart from your word working through us, we cannot grow. And so I pray that as we obey your word, you would do the work to train us for godliness that you would make us ready to see you and hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Lord, we depend on you entirely and completely and ask for you to do this work in Jesus' name, amen.